coming up on Philosophy Talk. What is space? What is time? What is space-time? Aren't space and time just aspects of space-time? Time might be another physical dimension. The past might be a canyon that they can climb into, and the future, the mountain they can climb up, but to us, it's not, okay? Einstein said, People like us who believe in physics know the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. He also said, the only reason for time is so that everything doesn't happen at once. Memory is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. We are so bound by time, by its order. The space-time continuum. Our guest is Tim Maudlin, author of Philosophy of Physics, Space and Time. So many social engagements, so little time. Coming up on Philosophy Time. Are space and time two separate entities, or are they intertwined dimensions of a single thing, the space-time continuum? And who cares? What difference does it make if they're two things or one messy thing? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford, where Ken and I teach philosophy. Today, it's the space-time continuum, another episode in our series, A Philosophical Guide to the Cosmos. Okay, I get space. I've lived in it all my life, and time, too. Space-time? What's that? I don't get it so much. Well, let's start with the easy stuff, John. All right, here's the easy stuff. There's space. It has three dimensions, east-west, north-south, and lower-higher. Time, that's before and after. I get them. Common sense, that is me, sees space and time as independent of each other and not merged together. Common sense also sees space and time as absolute things. Yeah, if by that you mean no matter where in the youth you measure from, surely your birth in Sandusky, Ohio, occurred 11 years after 800 miles east and 500 feet below my birth in Lincoln, Nebraska. And Newton, it's not just common sense. Newton saw it pretty much the same way. He saw space as this big, freestanding container that was separate and distinct from the, the material universe it contained. Like a coffee cup and the coffee it contains. Yeah, right. And time, then, con- is also a container. It contains the entire spatial manifold, which moves uh, through time as a single unit with all of its places forever intact. So you got the coffee in the cup, the cup is sliding down a timeline, the evolution of the universe is the state of the coffee changing as the cup and its contents move along the timeline. Perfect. Who needs anything better than that? Yeah, but Newton's contemporary and rival Leibniz was the first to reject. This is a lovely picture, but (laughs) Leibniz said it's incoherent. I mean, he thought it violated something he called the principle of sufficient reason. The principle of sufficient reason is the idea that for everything that exists, there must be a sufficient reason that explains why it is as it is and not some other way. Right, to get into Leibniz thinking a little bit, just imagine the material universe shifted one light year to the right in absolute space. Like moving the furniture in your living room to the right while keeping the arrangement intact. But the problem, he said, is that since you can't directly observe absolute space, you've got no fixed frame of reference like the walls and the floors to measure this movement against. 
So how could you tell if you were in the shifted universe or the unshifted one? Spoken exactly like Leibniz. He claimed that there would be no discernible distinction between one position in absolute space and another. And it's not just that we can't figure out, because of our limits, where in absolute space we ha the universe happens to be. He argued, I won't re try to repeat the argument here, but he argued that the very idea of absolute space turns out to be basically an empty idea, a, a null empty idea. All right, all right. I give up on absolute space and time. I'll put those aside. Does that get us space-time? No, not on its own, not on its own. Uh, relativity denies absolute space, but that doesn't get us space-time. We, we, we need to talk about the speed of light and its role as the measuring stick of something like the, the ge geometry of the universe, the geometry of space-time as measured by light. Well, why light rather than sound well, or, or some really fast well, football player? Yes, I'm not completely <laughs> sure, but it's something like, well, it's one thing. Light's the fastest thing in the universe, but more importantly, though, it travels at the same velocity relative to all observers. It's kind of like a rigid measuring rod that we can use to measure time and space. Well, but isn't all apparent motion relative in that way? I mean, suppose I'm standing still and you're running downfield at 20 miles per hour. Oh, I wish. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, you know, being not knowing my own strength, I throw the football at 60 miles per hour. You can't catch up. You, you wish you could throw the ball that fast. Well, at any rate, the ball's moving from me at 60 miles per hour, but, but if you're running at 20 miles per hour, it's only moving away from you at 40 miles per hour. Well, but light is different. Light, you cast a beam of light downfield, you know, when I'm coming past this uh, line of scrimmage, and even if you're standing still and I'm running my tail off, we'll each see it moving away at the speed of light. So does this get us to space-time? Well, let's think about that a little bit. Imagine you're standing at the center of a speeding train car, and I'm standing on a platform watching you go by, and just at the moment we pass each other, a flash of light, that pass, is emitted from the center of the car. Okay, I think I get that. So to you, the front and back of the car, they're located at fixed distances, equidistance from the source of the light. You're going to judge that the light reaches the two ends simultaneously, right? Of course. But what do you see? Well, I see the rear of the train moving toward the flashpoint. I see the front of the train moving away from it. Are you get me yet? Yeah, okay, this is kind of weird. Uh, weird properties of light. When you Then if you use it as a measuring stick, everything gets weird. Yeah, guess, huh? exactly, right. Since the speed of light, our, our measuring, measuring stick is the same in all directions for all observers, to me, the light headed for the back of the train covers less distance than the light headed for the front. So my measuring stick tells me that the flashes strike at the same time. Yours tells you that they strike at different times. Exactly. You said we also disagree about distances traveled. So I guess we disagree about the length of the car. You're kidding it, John. Yeah, well, so who's right, me or you? Well, we're both right, relative to our own frames of reference. Okay, so simultaneity is relative to frames of reference. Length is relative. Is anything not relative? Well, that's where the concept of space-time comes in. That's what we get instead of absolute space and absolute time. We get space-time. So I've been worrying about the relativity of ethics all this time, and I should just worry about the relativity of everything. So this is mind-boggling stuff. Yeah. And to boggle your mind even oh. more, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, to look at the paradoxes of time travel within the space-time continuum, especially the way they're represented on the big and small screens. She files this report. In the movie Back to the Future, Marty travels back to 1955 
and sings Johnny Be Good at a high school dance. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Chuck Berry ends up hearing Marty play the song and records it himself in 1958. It becomes a huge hit. The idea is, when someone like Marty goes back in time and causes an event, they were predestined to do it. So history hasn't changed. It's called the predestination paradox. Another time travel paradox is the butterfly effect. As shown in the movie, the butterfly effect. Today I get to meet my father. A guy travels back in time to fix past wrongs, but keeps messing things up along the way. In one scene, the time traveler goes back to his childhood and visits his dad in a mental institution. It turns out his dad was a time traveler too, and wants his son to stop messing with history. There is no right. You can't change who people are without destroying who they were. Who says you can't make things better? You can't play God, son. It must end with me. Just by being here, you may be killing your mother. The theory is, the tiniest change to our past can have the gravest effects on our present. The name comes from a short story about a man who travels back to prehistoric times and accidentally steps on a butterfly, causing disastrous changes in his own future time. And then there's the bootstrap paradox. The idea that if you send something or someone back in time, the person or object is trapped in an infinite cause and effect loop. They have no point of origin. The show Doctor Who gives a good example of this, with the help of Ludwig von Beethoven. Doctor Who creates a fictional scenario where a man is so obsessed with Beethoven's music, he travels back in time to meet his hero. So, off he goes to 18th century Germany. But he can't find Beethoven anywhere. Beethoven's parents have never heard of him. His friends don't know who he is. Ludwig van Beethoven doesn't exist. Yet. The time traveler panics. He can't bear the thought of a world without the music of Beethoven. Luckily, he brought all of his Beethoven sheet music for Ludwig to sign. So he copies out all the concertos and the symphonies, and he gets them published. He becomes Beethoven. And history continues with barely a feather ruffled. So who created Beethoven's symphonies in the first place? Suddenly, Ludwig has no time of origin. Other paradoxes include the grandfather paradox, the let's kill Hitler paradox, and so on. Science has come up with some solutions for some of these problems. Like the multiverse theory, which argues that every time a person time travels, a parallel universe is created or the self-healing hypothesis, which states that whatever a time traveler does in the past will set off another set of events to cause the present to remain the same. As science learns more about space and time, there'll surely be more paradoxes, solutions, and TV shows and Hollywood movies to play it all out. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. Want to hear more? You can hear the rest of the program by purchasing it at iTunes Music. Or, for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.